I remember the very first iPhone I ever saw. Do you remember where you were when you saw that very first iPhone? I remember I was in my grandma's basement, and my friend, the friend that always seemed to have the best of everything, right? The newest, the best, most expensive. He pulled the phone out, and he showed it to us, and it was just totally different because, of course, cell phones were still newer then, and, and most everybody, if they had a phone, it was a clamshell, and you finished the phone conversation. It was so satisfying just to slap it shut, right? Slap that thing shut. But this was a, was a phone that was a whole screen, and he showed me pictures that he had taken on it, and he was swiping, and then he would, he would do like this with his fingers, and the pictures would get bigger and smaller, and... And I thought, wow, this is amazing, but, but boy, that sure seems odd and awkward to hold this big flat thing up to your head. Um, I didn't think that I was going to really get into that. It didn't seem to be uh, very appealing to me, but of course, most all of our phones have gone that way. But this friend always used to, to have the best things. You know, when I had a, a certain bike, he had a bike that was better or cooler. Um, when I had skis, snow skis in the wintertime, he, he was buying the latest trendy pair of skis. And he, he seemed to always have the best and the next thing. Uh, when he got older, he, it was the, the Bugatti motorcycle that he wanted to buy. And, and eventually, I think he maybe did. And we thought, boy, he's going to kill himself on that thing. Um, all of these fancy things, the big truck that he bought to, tr to haul all of his toys down to the desert so he could spend time playing. But you know the interesting thing is, no matter what toy he got, in my estimation, it never seemed to really satisfy his heart. Uh, and as I think about my friend to this day, it seems like he's still searching for something. He's trying to find the next thing to really make his heart complete. That's the story of my friend and the story of many people in our world today. Maybe that's the story in your own life. But it certainly was true for King Solomon. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to be examining Solomon's life today. This is the last sermon in our series on the early monarchy. Uh, because after Solomon, uh, the kingdom splits. We get into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. No longer this early kingdom. 1 Kings chapter 3. We're not going to cover all of his story today because there's simply too much to cover. So imagine more like that we are going to be riding in a helicopter. We're going to get the, the bird's eye view of Solomon's life. And then at times we're going to hover down a little lower and examine certain parts of his story a little bit more closely. But the last time we got together, we saw how even before Solomon's prayer for wisdom, Solomon had dealt with getting his reign under control. Uh, we dealt with issues of justice in the Old Testament and so forth. The kingdom became firmly established in his hands in the end of chapter 2. And now we get to 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1. And the Bible says there, Solomon made an alliance with who? Pharaoh, king of what? Egypt. And he married his daughter. This was a common practice. However, an unwise practice according to what God had told the people. Uh, they weren't supposed to marry foreigners because foreigners worshipped other gods. 
Now, it was permissible if the foreigner converted and started worshiping the one true God, the God of heaven. Uh, unfortunately, there's no evidence that uh, suggests that the Pharaoh's daughter did ever convert. Nevertheless, he brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and a wall around Jerusalem. It's interesting, as you read 1 Kings, you see that five times this union with Pharaoh's daughter is mentioned. It seems like it was significant to the author of 1 Kings, recognizing this was a, a significant relationship. And it seems, uh, for somebody who was so wise, early on it seems like an unwise decision. In fact, this actually wasn't apparently Solomon's first marriage. Uh, if you go to 1 Kings 14, you see when it describes Rehoboam, Solomon's son who took the throne, uh, he was 41 years old, and Solomon ruled for 40 years. Uh, so, so apparently Solomon had already married before his uh, ascension to the throne, and now he takes another wife. And we'll talk a lot more about this. Um, so even though Solomon had a good start to his young life, we see that there are some early unwise decisions, some compromises. But also, as we think about his story, we can also say, praise God, that God selected him to be on the throne. Because as you recall from Solomon's birth, he was not the product of the normal, honorable decisions, right? Uh, in fact, as we look at it today, we would call he was the, the product of a rape. David was uh, the basically power-raped Bathsheba. Uh, and so in that culture, that would be very shameful and, of course, a very horrible thing in any society. But how neat that God said, I don't care what your circumstance has been. It wasn't Solomon's choice. Uh, I can use anybody. Amen. I can place anybody from dishonorable circumstances and I can put them in a very honorable circumstance. No matter what our past decisions in life may be, God can use us uh, for great and powerful things. The people, verse 2, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. He had a passion for God, but there's still some traces of compromise early on in Solomon's reign. But you know, as you read Solomon's prayer, starting in verse 7 to God, he's overwhelmed by the task of leadership. He doesn't know what to do. Verse 7, halfway through it, he says, But I am only a little child, and I don't know how to carry out my duties. And in that conversation, in that dream, that vision that God gave him, God said, What do you want? I'll give you anything you want. And instead of wishing for riches, power, or all these things, Solomon said, I just want wisdom because I don't know what to do. So even though Solomon had made some decisions even before he really got going in his reign, even though he'd made some unwise choices, his heart was still willing to follow God. And I tell you what, if we're waiting to become perfect before we let God use us, we'll never be used at all. None of us could ever be used. I couldn't be pastor if I had to be perfect. What God's looking for is not a perfect record, but God's looking for a willing heart. God's looking for a heart that says, God, I know I'm not perfect, but I want you to change me. I want you to make me better. And Solomon had that kind of heart. 
So as God looked down upon Solomon, he said, because he didn't ask for wealth, because he didn't ask for power, for riches, all these things, I'm going to give them to you anyways, and you're going to get the wisdom that you asked for. Early on in his reign, this wisdom is very apparent. Starting in verse 16, that, is, that story about those two moms debating about which child, who was the, tr- the true and lawful mother, and, and Solomon had, with that wisdom from God, made that wise decree. Such that the people in verse 28 of chapter 3 said, When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw he had wisdom from God to administer justice. The people recognized God is with our king. He's given him wisdom. Not only did God give him wisdom, but look at verse 20. It says, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over the kingdom from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines, and as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all of his life. He's a wise king. He has a large territory. The people recognize him as wise. Not only that, he becomes a very wealthy king. Very, very wealthy. But look at the verse 29 in chapter 4 now, because it describes how wise God made him. I tell you what, when we unite our limited wisdom with God's infinite wisdom, he can just take us far beyond what's possible and where we're capable of being. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand of the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east, greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Heman, Kalkol, and Darda. Of course, you all are familiar with these names, household names, right? (laughs) Wiser than the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread throughout all the surrounding nations. He spoke, how many Proverbs does it say? 3,000 Proverbs, these sayings, and his his songs numbered how many? 1,005. He described the plant life from the cedar of Lebanon and the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by the kings of the world who had heard his wisdom. See, he wasn't only a smart king about dealing with matters of justice. He also knew about nature. Uh, He was this scientist, as it were, from the knowledge that God had given him. And people came... They wanted to know about this king. They wanted to hear more about it. And then we zoom out and we see in chapters 5 through 9, Solomon begins the preparation for building the temple. He gathers all this material, gathers all these workmen, craftsmen, builds the temple, builds his palace. It takes seven years to build the temple. Um, And during the first 20 years, he completed the temple and he completes his palace. Uh, And there's that famous prayer of dedication in chapter 9 where Solomon prays and asks God in his presence to be in this place, the house that has been prepared for him. But even in that prayer, which we'll look at hopefully another time, Solomon just was so in awe with how small he was, how small the world was, and how vast God's creation was. He was humbled to even think that God would want to live in a place built by man. 
So Solomon is just enjoying the richness of God's blessings in all the spectrums of life. And then we get to this interesting story in verse 10. We're going to zoom back in. The Queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. There's been some debate about where Sheba is. Some say it was Ethiopia. If you go there, they will claim her as uh, a part of their story. But there's also some good evidence that it could have been in, in what would be modern-day Yemen. Uh, so, it, you know, we're not entirely sure. But she comes to him, verse 1, chapter 10. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with what? Difficult questions. She said, aha, if you're so wise, I have some questions for you. I have some questions. By the way, uh, uh, one of the few words, I shouldn't say that. I don't remember a lot of my Hebrew very well, but I do remember the word for wisdom. It was hakam. And my little mnemonic device was hakam, he's so wise. (laughs) And that's kind of what the Queen of Sheba was asking. How is this guy so wise? And is he as wise as people say he is? So she had some questions. Verse 2, arriving at Jerusalem with a great caravan with camels carrying spices. Can you picture this in your mind? Large quantities of gold, precious stones. She came to Solomon and talked with him about all that he had on her mind. And Solomon answered her, 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 all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. Now, this isn't recorded in Scripture, but you can go to various ancient Jewish traditions, Jewish sources, and you can read about one of the tests that the Queen of Sheba perhaps had for Solomon. She brought him, the story goes, uh, some flowers, these bouquets of flowers. Some of them were real and some of them were fake. Some of them were, were so finely made that from a distance it was impossible to tell which were the real and which were the fake. Scented even. So they smelled like flowers, um, I believe. So she brings these to Solomon and asks, Solomon, if you're so wise, tell me which are real and which are fake. Solomon had the, the, the flowers taken over by the window where they're supposed to have been a vine of flowers growing up and bees buzzing around. And not long, uh, a bee started to fly into the window. And the bee, who couldn't be fooled, uh, because flowers are their business, passed over the fake bouquets and went to the, the real bouquets. It didn't take him long, he said, that is your fake and that is your real. He was a very wise, wise man. Now, we don't know if that story is true or not, But in any case, as the queen listened to the things that Solomon had to say, she was just totally overwhelmed by his wisdom. She saw everything that he had done. Verse 4, when the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon, the palace that he had built, and the food on his table, and the seating of his officials, the attendants attending servants with their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. Totally overwhelmed. In fact, later in verse 7, she says, Indeed, not even the half was told. I heard Solomon was great. I heard he was amazing. But they didn't tell me half of the amazing things that he had done. Marco Polo, the great explorer, when he went off on his travels, 
to the Orient. He came back telling stories about these fantastic creatures and these, uh, he was talking about the, uh, the fireworks also and, and these exploding bombs. And he was talking about all these amazing things uh, that it was just too incredible for the people in his home country to believe. They said, on his deathbed, recant. Tell us that you were lying about all the wonderful things you saw on your trips to the east. And before he died, he said, no, I can't recant because I didn't even tell you half of the incredible things that I saw. That's kind of the experience that the Queen of Sheba had. Look at verse 9. Praise be you, excuse me, praise be to the, God, the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. The awesome thing here, we don't know that she converted, but as she walked away from Solomon, she said, wow, you have a good God. It's obvious that you're serving him. Isn't that how it's supposed to be with us? When people encounter us, they're supposed to say, wow, there's something different in their life. They're, they're serving God, and it makes a difference. They're not supposed to see, as, as so many times we do in the media, these Christians that totally put Christ to shame. Jesus said, we will know, people will know we're his disciples and his followers if we have love one for another. When people encounter us, what do they come away with? I hope it's love. I hope it's the love of God. She's overwhelmed. She goes back. She gives him gifts. She goes back to her country just totally astonished. And then we, we get a list of some of the vast wealth of Solomon in verse 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. People try and make things out of that number sometimes from this story. I don't think there's a lot there. Not including the revenues from the merchants and the traders and from all the Arabian kings and governors of the land. Solomon got a lot of money every single year. We're talking in the billions of dollars in today's currency. Every year, just tribute. That didn't count all of his other things. In fact, do you know who the wealthiest man in the world today is? Anybody know? It used to be Gates, up until about a week ago. Did it go back this last week? Okay, well, maybe it depends on how stock does this next week. Uh, but what I read on CNN earlier this week, it said that um, Jeff Bezos, Bezos, however you say his name, uh, the guy that owns Amazon, uh, $90 billion is his net worth right now. Uh, pretty crazy. He also recently bought Whole Foods. He owns Uber and other companies, stock in Google. Uh, in any case, Gates or this guy, $90 billion is a lot, but a few years ago they estimated Solomon's net worth. How much would he have been worth in today's currency? And they said about over $2 trillion was his net worth. So we're talking massive wealth. Uh, 90 billion seems very small in comparison to a couple trillion dollars worth. Solomon was immensely, immensely wealthy. Look at some of the things. Verse 18, 
The king had made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing between each of them. Twelve lions stood on six steps, one at either end of the step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. Sounds like a unique throne. <laughs> Luxury throne. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forests of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. What's this junk? Oh, that's silver. We don't need silver. Make it all gold. Two trillion or so. Verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. They didn't want to come to him simply because of his riches, but also because they knew he had something special. They knew God had put wisdom in his life. He also had a fancy for, for horses and chariots. Verse 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, or charioteers, which he kept in the chariot cities in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. And it's interesting as you listen to this description, uh, because in a moment we're going to look and, and see what God's instructions were for the king. Uh, but of course... We couldn't stop just there. He not only was wealthy, he not only was powerful and wise, but he had a lot of women in his life. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 11. King Solomon, however, it says. This is not a good however. However, as good as that's been, however, he loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They are from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your what? Your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. If there ever was a guy who had anything and everything he wanted, it was King Solomon. Wealth, he had it all. Power, wisdom, he had it all. Women, he had it all. He, I mean, he couldn't have known the names of many of his wives. Uh, it's just dumbfounding. If there ever was a guy that could be satisfied with the things in this world outside of Christ. Uh, Solomon would have been the prime candidate. Yet the Bible describes, as he wrote Ecclesiastes, we'll go there in a moment, describes how none of it satisfied. Seeking constantly, trying to find fulfillment outside of God, and none of it satisfied. Go back to Deuteronomy 17. I think this is why God had given his people so clear instructions. Super clear. Deuteronomy 17. 
God foretold, foresaw that Israel would want a king. We talked about that a few weeks ago. God described what the king should be like. And now it describes the activities of the king. We saw already a few weeks ago that the king was supposed to have the job of writing his own copy of the Bible and studying it. That was his job. But there in, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, it says, The king, moreover, must not acquire great number of what? Of horses. Solomon had a lot of horses. Directly in violation to this. Don't get a lot of horses for himself to make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. As you study Solomon's life, he was getting his horses from the very place God told him not to get horses. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. Verse 17, he must not take many what? Wives. Boy. Oops. Didn't know about that verse there, God. Oh, he knew fully well. Don't take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. The very thing God foretold would happen is what we see happening there in 1 Kings. He must not accumulate a large amount of silver and gold. Solomon had so much silver and gold that silver was just like useless to him. Of these three things, it's amazing that those were the three things that Solomon had the most of. But I tell you, success is really dangerous. Success is so dangerous. Many of us would love to be wealthy, rich, famous, and successful. But maybe the reason God hasn't allowed that in your life is because he knows it will lead you astray. Now, maybe there are other reasons. But success is so dangerous. Uh, God wants us to be successful in, in many regards. But more importantly, he wants us to stay faithful. What's driving your life? What's the, the primary motivation for you in your life? Solomon was trying to just make himself happy, trying to be fulfilled. And all these things didn't satisfy him. Go back with me to 1 Kings as we prepare to wrap up the story of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11. Verse 4, it says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to God. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. I tell you what, there are a lot of dangers in this world. Uh, but the danger of unholy relationships, whether it be through, through marriage or through friendship or, or whatever, is a very, very powerful one. Uh, so many young men, so young women... They end up marrying somebody who doesn't love God. And they say in the beginning, oh, but they're so nice. I know somebody very closely who married somebody who was such a nice guy. Uh, and then she, he ended up taking her away from God. And, and in the end, they ended up divorcing. Uh, the guy that was so nice in the beginning didn't have his heart surrendered to God. And she literally feared for her life. He ended up calling 911 one night because she was worried that he was going to come back and kill her. Relationships are so, so important. We've got to be so prayerful when we're selecting our spouse, when we're selecting 
uh, when we're helping guide our young people in their decisions, uh, when we're making our, our friends in this world, we have to be so careful. Solomon thought he could stay true to God and maintain all these relationships, but when he got old, his heart went away from God and he worshipped the gods of these other women. God raises up in verse 14 and onward, adversaries. It's interesting because the Hebrew word there is Satan. God raised up Satan's. just means adversary. And ultimately, Satan is the great adversary. God allowed people to come against him in war, hoping that Solomon would turn his heart back to him. Hoping this would be the case. Eventually, Solomon dies. Verse 41 through 43. There's some evidence, though, that he kind of woke up slightly before his death. As we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and let's, let's turn there now, um, our last passage for this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Some evidence. Um, most people, well, many scholars believe Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, that this is kind of his life testimony after living a life, pursuing pleasure outside of God, realizing it didn't ever make him happy. Oh, if I just get this next thing, the newest model, if I can just get the iPhone 27, then that will make me satisfied. If I can just beat this next level on this game, if I can just get this upgrade, this next car, this next thing, this next spouse, then I'll be happy. Didn't work for Solomon. Look at what he says, chapter 2, Ecclesiastes, verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. That's amazing. Anything he wanted, he had it. Now, most of us don't, don't even have the option to do that. We think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have that? Well, I don't have the money for it, so I can't have it. Not, not the case for Solomon. Anything he wanted, he had it. He said, I denied myself nothing. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. But verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Vanity, a chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun. Trying to find happiness, chasing after these rainbows. And it always was further on in the, in the horizon. Solomon says, it just didn't make me happy. We can see so many examples of this in our world today. But we don't have to make the same mistakes as Solomon. We don't have to think that satisfaction and happiness is just around the corner when God says, in my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand, our pleasures forevermore. In the end, Solomon concludes his tale in verse chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes with a warning and instruction for us. Chapter 12, verse 1, he starts off saying, Remember your Creator now in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come. Don't put God off until later. The tinsel of the world will not satisfy you. Seek your creator now. And then verse 13 and 14, he says, Now let us hear all 
the conclusion of the matter. What did I learn in my life? He says this, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Follow God. That was his advice. We don't have to try and emulate his life. We can follow him today, finding satisfaction and contentment in the ups and downs of life today. In 1905, there was a man named Howard. Howard Hughes was brought into the world. Some of you remember that name. Lived until 1966. Howard became very wealthy. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world during his time. He lived a crazy life. If he loved adventure, Howard had an adventurous life. Setting speed records and records, he built the Spruce Goose, that massive wooden airplane, setting records in his day. Filmmaker, director, dated Marilyn Monroe, uh, had all these opportunities in his life. But the sad story of Howard Hughes is much like the story of Solomon, because in the end, Howard died a recluse in his house. In fact, I've heard, and it's been said that he had been sheltered for so long and changed so much and was so physically um, unrecognizable that they had, to, um, they had to use his fingerprints to just identify him at the time of his death. Uh, the, a guy that died the shell of a man that he could have been. But what was interesting, one day he was asked in the prime of his wealth, he said, Howard, how much money is enough? How much money is enough? And he answered... Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Solomon had it all. And it never satisfied. The question I have for us this morning is, what are you using to try and seek satisfaction in this life? Anything outside of the God context will be dissatisfactory. Of course, God wants us to have enough money to survive, he wants us to have good relationships, satisfaction through these things, but only as we put him first and foremost. I want my priorities to be right. How about you? Let's learn the lesson from the man who thought he had it all. Let's pray. Dear God, we're so thankful that we don't have to chase after the latest fad or the latest product in seeking happiness. We can chase after you day by day. Thank you for the peace that you give us in spite of our challenging circumstances, in spite of the ups and downs of life. And thank you, Lord, that when we get to heaven, we're not going to ever have to worry about wealth or any of that. Streets will be paved in gold and just be like, like pavement up in the kingdom, Lord. Um, I just pray that we can keep our hearts set on you. And if we're tempted to chase after other things to satisfy our hearts, may we remember, only you satisfy. May we fear you and follow you, as Solomon told us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Have a happy Sabbath.